We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna That's after Joshua starts. It's the right move for our team. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, I, don't, I don't feel a need, honestly, to elaborate. That's you know, We talk a lot in-house about decisions and things and what we've got to do and, and the right move at the right time. And, and right now, Sal, this, with all respect to your question, this is the right move. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockfile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Captain Ambien, coach of the Buffalo Bills, Sean McDermott, during his uh, weekly press conference at BuffaloBills.com. Earlier today. <laughs> earlier today. I, I didn't want to subject our audience to the sounds of the game from Sunday. Well, thank you for that, Chris. Folks, NFL football was officially back this weekend. The season kicked off on Sunday. Well, actually, I guess technically on Thursday. But on Sunday, like bleach in the eyes or a hot fart under your blankets on a cold winter night when you're all hunkered in under there, the Buffalo Bills made sure everybody knew that they were back. <laughs> I called it last week. I said, I feel like this is going to be that jet game where we drop, <laughs> they drop like 48 on. You did say I that. I called it. I, I give you a lot of credit. You called for it and you had to drink a Seagram's. I don't know how I didn't see that coming. Um, so folks, over the weekend, I hosted what was a goodbye party to my in-home bar. My wife and I bought a new home. We're moving into it. It's a lot more family-friendly. It's going to be better for hosting events, hosting family events. But it doesn't have a bar in it, and I really – I mean, I cried. I openly cried after everyone left. I just sat down there with a beer in my hand and some tears in my eyes looking around the room just going, I've watched the last Bills game that I'll see in this basement. It, it was a it was a thing, and for that though, a lot of people came over. I mean, I had probably about twenty people in total over at my house, including a number of children, um, there were women that, that you made cry. Listen, just because that one kid is scared of loud noises, I can't be held responsible for that. Don't bring your kid to my bar. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a lot better at the new place because 
most people like Reed, he won't have to duck coming downstairs because your basement is I think your basement ceiling uh reaches at five foot six. Oh no, not even. Uh I was gonna say no, no, my basement ceiling's probably right around six one. It's not uh it's not comfortable for anybody who's tall. I'll say that. It's a tight fit. So during the game and during the, you know, all the, all the festivities and everything we had going on, I mean, we had a great time. In fact, one of the highlights of my day, Poncho Bila and the uh, Dallas Fort Worth Bills backers. Even though we were getting destroyed and we never did end up getting that uh, touchdown, <laughs> they did end up buying a shot, round of shots on us and sending us the picture of it. And it just, it, it made me feel good knowing there's all these people out there who we're connected with. It, it almost makes the suffering a little bit easier to swallow. And honestly, I, I meant what I said in our pregame video. If you guys watched our Periscope before kickoff, something about the breaking of the drought. I feel like a weight was kind of lifted off of my shoulders. I, it put me in the perfect frame of mind for whatever fresh hell this 2018 season is going to be. I, I, I felt and still feel like Frank Drebin from The Naked Gun in that one scene where he's just, the building is exploding and people are jumping out of it behind him and he's just waving to the crowd of people telling them, there's nothing to see here, folks. Everybody needs to disperse. I mean, that's, that's how I feel. Having said that, there are still some things that stick in my craw and we're going to talk about them. But Chris, before we do that, we have to kick off this week's Bill's News Update. Why do bad things always seem to happen in threes? You know, th this week started, I mean, there was the Bills game, okay? The Bills game happened, and I said, oh, God, thank God that's over. And then I went to work, and I don't know if you guys can hear it, but I am coming down with a cold, and, and, and the temperature dropped in Buffalo by about 10 degrees for four days, and in that four-day span, I somehow caught a cold. You got to prep for that. You got to take airborne as the season changes daily. Ugh. That's what I do. Man, it's it's incredible to me. And now it's going to be 80 degrees over the weekend and I'm going to be sick and sweating my ass off, which is great. So in my head I'm like this week can't possibly get any worse, right? And then today at right around 9 a.m., 10 a.m., my phone rings. And it's my 70-year-old secretary, the secretary for our office, who called me, of all people, to tell me that she's listening to WBEN, as 70-year-old women are wont to do, and heard that Josh Allen was going to be named the Buffalo Bills starter. And I hung up that phone and realized, folks, things really do come in threes, don't they? Oh, my God! Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the Everybody procedure, everyone? Calm. What's the procedure? Stay the Josh Allen era, folks. It's here. He is getting his first NFL start. <laughs> oh, Chris, how did we get here? Uh, easy. Sunday happened. That's uh, how we got here. Sunday was that bad. <laughs> it's, it's essentially what happened last year in Houston. Tom Savage played one half. And then Bill O'Brien went, what the fuck am I doing? And then he threw in Deshaun Watson for the second half, played well, and then he started week two. So if we're mirroring that concept, Josh Allen will have a torn ACL by week eight. <laughs> oh, my God. You heard it in the intro. I, 
nothing bothers me more than the decision of A, you're going to make this choice, and then B, you're not going to talk about it? I defend coaches for not having to placate fans and play, you know, the, the, the only, I've said it a thousand times, defended Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, whereas local fans beat the hell out of them for not saying enough, not answering the press's questions, not answering the questions fans want answered. He did say, uh, I don't need to elaborate on that. And that's basically saying, you saw what happened on Sunday. I have to do this now. I, but, but you d- didn't have to do it. And I guess we're going to get into that in a little bit, but just, I defend a lot of NFL coaches on stuff like, and a lot of coaches period on stuff like this, because I feel in my heart of hearts that they don't have a responsibility to the media. They don't have a responsibility to the fans. They have to show up for press conferences, go through the dog and pony show and win games. That's it. That's their job. And if they do that, they can be idiots. They can be jerks to the media all they want. They can flip fans off as they're pulling out of the parking lot. If you win me 14 games as a Buffalo Bills coach and you want to flip me off while I'm standing in line at 7-Eleven, good for you. Good for you. You earned it. But to hear that you're making this decision now and you don't want to elaborate on it, God, that sticks in my craw almost as much as what we saw on Sunday. It doesn't have to. And that brings us to the week one update. Week week one recap, rather. Ravens 47, Buffalo Bills 3. Chris, I, I, it hurts me to do this, but I'm going to give. I thought about not even giving stats of the game, but I feel like I have to in an attempt to try to bring some context to the misery. Yeah, let's remind our audience. How much we sucked. <laughs> Total yardage. Bills 153, Ravens 369. Joe Flacco, 25 of 34 for 73%. Multiple touchdowns. Still not an athletic quarterback. Nathan Peterman, 5 of 18 for 24 yards and two picks. Josh Allen, 6 of 15 for 74 yards. No touchdowns, no interceptions. Marcus Murphy, 33 yards per attempt. And he led the team with 31 yards on six carries. There was, excuse me, Marcus Murphy's return attempt yardage. 33 yards per return. He was the, Chris, can I, can we say that he might have been the best part of our special teams unit the entire day? I would say the best part of our special teams in offense. Even some of his runs that he made were real good. On the, the Bills defense, six touchdowns allowed, 10 yards per completion on average, five completions of over 20 yards. On the flip side, the Bills offense, seven separate possessions resulting in negative yardage. Seven. Three points, two turnovers, and one screen pass that was thrown to no one. I have to start this out with Brian Dable and question whether there was actually a plan here. In last week's show, we hosted Ken McCusick from the uh, Film Study Ravens from over at the Randall Street Report. Russell Street Russell Report. Russell Street Report. About the Ravens' defense, and together we kind of parsed through what their defense was built like, and we identified the fact that their safety group and any linebacker not named C.J. Mosley, just by nature of their athletic profile and their skill set, were able to be exploited by teams who had pass-catching running backs and tight ends that could 
had a feel for how to work the middle of the field. Considering the makeup of our roster, tight end heavy, running back heavy, he was concerned. And I went into this game with some cautious optimism that the team, even though I didn't think we'd win, might be able to move the ball even if it wasn't fantastic. So I want you all to imagine my frustration and confusion this week when knowing what an absolute, I mean, we're talking Benny Hill-style train wreck, Chris. Benny Hill. There might as well have been, uh, you know, the funny hat police officers with batons. They might as well have been running around out on the field. That's what our offense looked like. These were the statistics I pulled out that didn't make any sense to me. Five. That's the number of times a running back was targeted in the passing attack. Five. One is the number of times one of the, any of those passes were actually caught and it led to a negative one-yard game. Seven. The number of times a tight end was targeted in the passing attack. Two was the number of times a tight end was targeted more than ten yards from the line of scrimmage. Four of 13 for 36 yards. That is the combined stat line of Zay Jones and Kelvin Benjamin. Benjamin had two drops, including a wide open one in the end zone for a touchdown. Chris, this doesn't make any sense to me. That was the worst one of them all. Hit him. Allen hit him right in the goddamn hands. You, you mean to tell me? That you went into a game against an opponent who had a glaring weakness that people who don't get paid money can see. And you not only don't exploit it, it's like you ignore it completely and go the opposite direction. I'm what, five times you tried to pass the ball to a running back and you only completed one of them? A running back pass is one of the easiest passes in football. I don't understand it. Even as a check down, you should accidentally make three of them a game. So to see that that wasn't even emphasized as a point of the game, even though LaShawn McCoy is one of the most talented players on this entire roster, to know that he was not made a part of the passing attack. I mean, that just blows my mind. And if you really want to get it all out, let's drag it all out, Chris, and air it out like a dirty blanket. Look no further than the half of football that Peterman was allowed to play. The reason that Nathan Peterman was named the starter, Chris, it's all based on his production from the offseason, or the preseason, have you, what have you. Man, these cold meds are really, <laughs> the moose head and the cold medicine is really doing a number over here. The thing that gets me about this, In the preseason, when we watched Nathan Peterman, he put up statistics in every single game. He had over 100 yards passing. He had multiple touchdowns thrown. He looked good. He looked sharp. And it all came, as I stated multiple times, from an offense that was essentially one read, get the ball out as quickly as possible, or, hey, we're going to call a timing route. You're going to throw it to a spot once it's snapped on maybe a three-step drop. That's it. That is the extent that we are going to allow you to play quarterback. And he looked good doing it. And I remember saying time and time again, this is not sustainable in in a week-to-week NFL offensive attack. This week, from what I I saw, none of that. Chris, I I saw them trot him out there and then run play action and then ask him to scan the field and find the right receiver. 
which isn't what they did in the preseason that made him successful. So if you're not going to play to his strengths, even though you clearly identified what they are, why is he out there at all? I, I, I don't understand. And if you want to try to, even those of you listening to this, who want to try to make the argument that, oh, well, maybe it's something that the defense did to try to take away the tight ends and the running backs. Or maybe they forced the Bills to have to throw the ball outside. That's your job as an offensive coordinator. Brian Dable, it's to make the necessary adjustments and find ways to move the football. So if you see that they're doing this, then in the second half, I expect you to come out with an answer. And when you don't, understand that you're going to be criticized for it. I feel like I don't hear enough about this, Chris. Have you? My whole thing is why we didn't do anything on offense was the next segment. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can't criticize the guy's game plan to Chris's point. I can't criticize it all that much because I walk away from this feeling like they're. I can't tell what your game plan was. That's how bad, that's how poorly executed everything was. And I think a lot of it starts with this next group on my shit list. The offensive line. There's a cliff. And your family screaming, oh my God, we're burning alive. No, I can't feel my legs. In comes a meat wagon. And the medic gets out and says, oh my God. God. I saw two tweets, one from John Ramsey at Yards Per Pass. Uh, he didn't even need to show the receiver route tree, and it was, you know, was, uh, like an end zone camera, and our two guards, or one of our guards and Dawkins, they ran into each other, like in the middle of the field, and they blocked no one. And then I saw something from uh, Eric Turner where uh, Ducasse pulled to the right, Groy took his spot. And Groy just got shoved to the ground, and Peterman got tackled immediately. <laughs> it was just, uh, guys. It was an abomination. I I have to open a fresh beer for this. Okay, Chris, I made something for you, and you can see it in the show notes that I mailed you. If you don't tweet this out, yeah, I'm gonna punch you in the mouth. I want you. I made this in Excel, and I want you to explain to people what it is you're looking at. I mean, I see, let's see, Newhouse holding penalty, Groy, false starts, Ducasse holding, Chuck Clay holding, Dawkins, uh, unnecessary roughness, Ducasse, a false start, John Miller, you got a penalty for just being on the field. (laughs) For me, Chris, that's right, folks. I made Chris a chart of every offensive line penalty, the time it happened, the type, and what was going on. Because I needed to do it for my own for my own sanity. To try to wrap my head around what the hell was going on in our offensive line. I mean, for those of you watching the game at home who were wondering why McCoy was screaming sometimes as he's walking back into the huddle, four of his runs for positive yardage were negated by penalties. Okay? That's one, two, three holding penalties and one 15-yard running penalty on Deion Dawkins. I mean, it was it was incredible. It's a thing to watch. Every time he tried to do something positive, the team would do something stupid in response. According to a tweet from Twitter user NFL Draft Diamonds, 
There's talk that Wyatt Teller is quote-unquote in the team's doghouse. I'm sorry, but if Teller's in the team's doghouse, I feel like I can I can name a few of our starters who belong out behind it, like Old Yeller. Dukas, John Miller, Groy. This isn't one of those things that I know people bag on people on the radio who say it. Like, oh, well, you know, people get after Nate Geary when he says, oh, well, I played quarterback in college, so I know this. Here's... I played offensive line as a little kid, okay? I know, I, I love watching offensive line. I like watching trench warfare in the NFL. It's my favorite position to watch on a play-to-play basis. And I'm sure there's plenty of other people out there listening to the show who either played or simply understand how offensive lines work that can agree with me on this point. There are different types of penalties and different causes of them, even when they're made by the same guy. But when I'm looking at this chart... Every single member of our starting offensive line appears on it, some of them multiple times. Multiple times. And, and here's one of the, here's the thing. When, when I look at this chart and I look at the times when the penalties occurred, the plays that they occurred on, it kind of starts to put things into focus as to what went wrong. But then again, it doesn't. For an example, DeCoss had two penalties. On the hold, that came in the second quarter. It's simply he lost leverage due to poor technique, which if anybody out there's played, played football, it leaves you flailing and, but you don't want to give up on your quarterback. So you just grab, you grab to try to maintain some semblance of control. And on the false start, it's a lack of focus in terms of just waiting for the ball to be snapped. Here's an, an interesting point to me. And it, it comes just as the nature of the penalty though. It's interesting to me that four separate players were called for holding. It illustrates not just a lack of technique. You know, if you see it happening with one guy, I mean, we've had Bills games where we, we know we've watched one offensive lineman time and time again having to hold because they're overmatched by the person that they're lined up against. You know, whether it's a defensive end or whether it's a defensive tackle that's just too big for them. You know, I mean, we've played Muhammad Wilkerson how many times and we've watched him eat our offensive lines alive. When you see matchups like that and you see where one player is just getting drilled with a, you know, three or four penalties in a game, that speaks to a guy just being physically outmatched. It's a weak link in the line and there's nothing you can do about that. But you can put it into the context of, okay, it, became, it was a product of this matchup. Instead, the fact that four different players got called for holding, I mean, what do you do? I don't understand. It speaks to the widespread chaos that was created across our offensive line throughout the entire game by the Ravens' front seven. The worst one was the uh, the unnecessary roughness by Dawkins on a five-yard McCoy run, and we were in the red zone. Not that it mattered because the game was already over by then, but that's the worst. When you can the, when you could get in the end zone and you just commit a dumb penalty like that. He got pulled off the field for a play because of that. I mean, ultimately, when you fail across the board as an offensive line, it's almost impossible for me to point to one guy as, oh, that was the problem. That's what's so terrifying about this performance. The offensive line as a whole folded, absolutely folded across the board. So there's nothing I can point to and say, this guy's the problem, or that guy's the problem, or hey, next week we need to run more to the right side because the left side clearly wasn't getting pushed. Nobody did their job. In fact, the only one who didn't have a penalty called on him was Jordan Mills, who is usually my whipping boy. Yeah, he's useless. Uh, but he was our best lineman. 
on Sunday. I just, I don't. I thought Wyatt Teller was. He didn't play, so <laughs> by that rule alone, he was our best lineman. And then, for those of you who thought that this got rosy at some point, well, it doesn't. Defense on the opposite side of the ball doesn't get any better. It's like the Bills listened to our last podcast with Ken and actively tried to do the, diff- uh, do the opposite of everything we discussed. There was no pressure, Chris. None. Joe Flacco has the, the same level of athleticism as the Statue of Liberty. And you. <laughs> I may be able to beat him in a foot race. No, you won't. I mean, there, there's just, there's nothing. And then when they finally did get some penetration behind the line of scrimmage, it was on the wrong side. We talked with Ken about how Flacco simply isn't capable of throwing an accurate ball when he rolls out to the left. And that he has to roll out to the right, and sometimes they'll do that if there's pressure coming by design. A good defensive coordinator goes into the game knowing his team's tendency on that and actively tries to discourage them from calling plays. And instead, I watched it happen again and again and again, where he would just roll out to the right, allow his receivers to work open down the field, and throw the ball. That's it. From his right, he can throw the ball across his body because he has a strong arm, and he did it time and time again, and it was incredibly frustrating to watch. I, Chris, do these guys, I got the feeling from both sides of this that they, there was no plan going into this game. I mean, <laughs> I mean, were there coaches? Did anyone see coaches on the sideline? I know that they kept showing McDermott on TV. Were there any coordinators anywhere, anywhere? In the facility on the day that this game was played, because it doesn't feel like it. No, it was it was well, it was our what worst loss ever on opening opening weekend ever, which is fantastic. But you know, our we couldn't get any pressure. Well, there was on no crea- Fla- on Flacco. And there was no creativity. There was no creativity in the pass rush whatsoever. You can't line up four linemen and bull rush every single time and expect to get very far. Well, Shaq Lawson thinks otherwise. The only time that they get, the only time that they did get pressure was when they sent more than four rushers, but it didn't matter because then that left us liabilities and coverage. It just it wasn't anything fancy. There was just they didn't do anything. You know, <laughs> they didn't do anything in terms of adding extra protection for Flacco. We just failed across the board to get any kind of penetration. I just I. I, I don't understand it. There was no stunting. There was no twisting. There was no. It was like this team treated that game like another preseason game, where they went in with no actual game planning, except it was week one and it actually mattered. In the middle of the field, our linebackers—they looked just like young, young, improving linebackers should look when the pass rush in front of them fails. Milano, I mean, he did okay. And he had a chance to make an interception, but he couldn't come up with it. And Edmonds, I mean, he was solid. Okay. But we gave up a ton of yards after the catch on short passes where no one in the box could bring down the tight end, the wide receiver, or the running back until at least four yards after they caught the ball. The Ravens got all of their catches. Okay. Except for two. You know, when you look at the passing chart, and you actually look at where their completions came. Because you see all the yardage they racked up on us, and you say, okay, our pass defense stinks. How about this? It wasn't us getting beat downfield. 
by 10, 15 yards, where their wide receivers were just more physical than ours, or where they were just faster, like Tyreek Hill, and blew the doors off the defense. No, they were throwing the ball in front of our corners and in front of our linebackers and forcing them to make tackles, and the zone defense failed. It failed. It couldn't contain anybody, and a huge part of it was Phillip Gaines, which leads me to the most confusing aspect of the entire game for me, save for one. The Bills didn't just bench cornerback Vontae Davis. Okay, When the game started and I'm watching, and on the first series, I see Phillip Gaines just completely blow a coverage. He's playing zone, but he's way too soft. And John Brown gets an easy what, Chris? 20-yard catch right in front of him? I think that was when he threw it like across the field. Yeah. A la what you saw Sam Darnold do on Monday. <laughs> you shut your mouth. <laughs> so he... He gets this, he, he blows that play, and then he blows the next play, and he blows another play later, and I'm looking around going, why isn't Vontae Davis getting put into this game? This guy's struggling. Oh, wait, because you made him inactive. What? Yeah, you he did what? He did allow one of those touchdowns, too. You, you signed this guy to be your cornerback, too, and he's not even active for game day. Okay? Oh, my God. Keynes isn't cut out, Gaines isn't cut out to be a number three cornerback on a team, much less a starter. I mean, you look at Kansas City. They drafted him in the third round, and he lost his job in less than three years. So by the end of last year, they were happy to see him go. They didn't give a damn. He comes here, and this coaching staff sees fit to make him the number two. And then when asked about it, they get told that it's because well, his versatility, and uh, he can play special teams, and if we need him, he can play the slot. So what? If I'm trying to cut down trees, a Swiss Army knife isn't going to do me any good. Oh, 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 sure, it can do a lot of different things, but if it sucks or is mediocre at all of them, what good is it? Oh, my God. If there was anything that made me want to chew glass, that was it. That decision right there. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't bite the neck off of a beer bottle. <laughs> I'm constantly threatening to do it, and that almost got me there. I don't understand from a roster management position. Again, so now I've got an offensive coordinator who failed to do his job properly. I've got a defensive coordinator who failed to scheme up anything useful. I've got a head coach who allowed his number two cornerback heading into the season not even to be benched, not even to be brought in on a rotational basis, to be just, he's not even dressed for the game. Is anyone here doing anything? Are any of you actually trying, or did you somehow think that this was the fifth week of the preseason? Because that, it looked like it. It looked an awful lot that way. And here comes the axe that I have to grind, the biggest one from my entire takeaway from the week. And it kind of feeds into what we were talking about in the news update with Josh Allen. This is where my analysis really takes shape, so just bear with me here for a second. I mean, it's the crux of what I want you guys to take away from our recap here tonight. Sunday worried me not because we lost or because we just looked completely like, like we didn't belong on an NFL football field, but it made me doubt for the first time since McDermott and Bean were both brought here that there actually is a plan here. Let's put this in the context of the 2016 Los Angeles Rams. Under John Fisher, their team went into 2016 with a highly drafted rookie quarterback in Jared Goff, 
some, some talent on defense, an ultra-talented running back, and an offensive line that was just completely subpar by NFL standards. Who the hell is John Fisher? Oh, my God, Jeff Fisher. God, see these cold Either med- way. The cold medication. John, John, Jeff, Jacob, who gives a shit? He sucks. Ugh, he should be, I, I told you, he should be arrested for crimes against football and forced to go hang out in Guantanamo for a year or two. That season, the, the Rams knew they were going to be bad. And they also recognized that Goff wasn't ready to go out there and play. So, <laughs> I mean, look at, they had a bad roster, a lack of creative offensive play calling, and an inability to protect a quarterback. They knew it would end in disaster. So instead of throwing the rookie quarterback to the Wolves, they gave that honor to Case Keenum, career journeyman. Guy went four and five, had some miserable performances, including a loss to the Bills and two sub 200 yard passing games. And then when the team was out of contention, they let Goff step in and take the last seven games. You know, they figured, hey, he's, he's been in practice. He's been around the team long enough. He's finally used to NFL speed. And the most speed importantly, of the NFL game. most importantly, they're out of the playoff picture. Exactly. You, you've been eliminated. There's nothing else to prove. Now let's throw our rookie out there and get him some game action. And he lost every single one of his seven starts that season. It gave him a no-pressure experience to learn the NFL game heading into 2017. They go into that offseason. They spend money on the offensive line. They bring in a rookie tight end. They bring, they bring in a wholesale change of wide receivers from the previous year. And with that level of talent and a creative offensive mind, that rookie was able to flourish. And you look at week one. What happened to the Chargers? Patrick Mahomes was drafted. I myself said this kid will never be able to play NFL football because he came from an air raid offense that never grooms. I mean, it does not prepare a quarterback for what they're going to see at an NFL level. So, not shockingly, Patrick Mahomes didn't play last season. He didn't play at all. And he came into this year and didn't look as lost as I expected him to. In fact, he didn't look lost at all. He looked like a guy who spent some time around an NFL team has picked up the nuances and the speed of an NFL game and wasn't a deer in the headlights when it came time to actually play and the real bullets were flying. And it doesn't help that Andy Reid is your head coach. I have long held on to the theory that this is the model that the Buffalo Bills were going to choose to follow. Can you blame me? It, it seems to hold some merit that it might work. And you're going into a season next year where the Bills are going to have plenty of draft capital. We're going to have plenty of cap space a mix of veteran and backup-level quarterback talent on the roster, and massive amounts of cap space. Massive amounts. I mean, I can't underscore that enough. You can go out there and buy a lot of position players. You can fill your depth. You can go out there and upgrade on the offensive line where you couldn't this offseason because you have $50 million in dead money. This was all by design. Then we traded A.J. McCarron. I mean, I remember telling you guys, I was in the middle of a fantasy draft and someone told me we traded him and I cussed up a storm because I didn't understand it. It just seems unnecessary considering it only left us with two quarterbacks on the roster. And for what? A fifth round pick? In 2014, SB Nation's Mile High Report produced a chart that is centered around the tracking of a decade of draft data and charted the average number of years of players with the drafting team by round. Fifth round picks, 
The retention rate for fifth-round picks after two seasons is only 50%. And by the time you get to a fifth year, that percentage drops to 16. That's the pick. You traded away your insurance policy for not having to rush your rookie quarterback for a fifth-round pick that may ultimately end up being a player that doesn't provide any kind of value for your franchise. Chris, help me understand this, because I don't see it. I don't see the line. Tra- you couldn't trade uh, Peterman. Simple as that. Why are you trading it all? Okay, how, how, how many teams carry three quarterbacks on the active roster? Probably those with rookies that aren't ready to start. Not a lot. It's usually just two. The reason this sticks in my craw, with McCarron gone... Sunday, the team was forced, uh, they were forced to make Nathan Peterman the starter. You had to. He was the only one who had an NFL game under his belt. And you could argue that he earned it with those stats in the preseason. But like I said, I, those stats are, those stats often lie. And they often hide what's actually going on, especially in the preseason. And they had no viable experience backup option. None whatsoever. So here we go with a poor offensive game plan, a subpar quarterback, subpar weapons, and a suspect offensive line against a physical and opportunistic defense. Chris, how do you think that played out? How, how did they? I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall for the meetings this week to see how they thought this was going to go. And, and I, I, Chris, if you're getting your head kicked in and you decide, okay, we're going to let Peterman just take his lumps and sit out here and take his beating for the game, I get that. I support that because that is the that, that shows that, okay, we're going to stay the course because our rookie wasn't ready to start, so we're going to shelf him for the year, let him learn behind this guy, and when he's ready, we'll put him in. But then down by more than 20 points, you take that rookie who just a week ago you said wasn't ready, and you roll him out there into a no-win situation. I, I don't understand it. I only get it because we were playing that bad. You make that change. If if it was the game was a lot closer, then Peterman would have never been taken out. But if you're already out of the game, why do you change? What is there to change? The the game is already decided. The game is already decided. You can see that you're overmatched across the board. Why put your rookie quarterback in that position? If you didn't think he was good enough to start the game, what changed between quarter one and quarter three? Some other guy being shitty at his job shouldn't dictate that you rush your plan. And that's why I'm terrified. Because at best, it's a poorly, con- it's a poorly conceived knee-jerk reaction by a coach who thought winning this one game was more important than the big picture. At worst, it's a sign that the plan that I thought they had for this all along might not exist. They may not have a plan. Chris, they may very well just be flying by the seat of their pants with this. I I mean, Chris, that is a terrifying prospect. We've identified the fact that the groundwork was laid for this team to be subpar to bad this season. And yet at the same time, I, I, I didn't care heading into all this because I had the knowledge that, hey, we're going to let this guy learn. He's going to learn on the job, and when he's ready, he'll take the reins. And instead, now we're rolling this quarterback out there knowing that this team is is subpar. 
The talent levels are subpar. There's a lot of things that are wrong with this team. If you want to win it, if you want to win enough games to make a playoff appearance, there's a lot of things wrong with this roster. If that's who you think we are, this isn't the roster you go do that with, especially with a rookie quarterback. And yet they didn't do anything to upgrade anything. In fact, they traded away the one guy who could have prevented this. And yet they want to sell it to me as if it's somehow a good idea. Hey, Brandon, how dumb do you think I am? Chris, I'm going to bring it back down. (laughs) You weren't going to get anything from Peterman. You can get something from McCarron. That's why I understand the trade. This trade, the the trade makes no sense. There's no justice. Makes perfect sense to me. Well, that's because you're an idiot. Appreciate you. They're clearly trying to build something here. I'm not, I'm not saying that the Bills aren't. I'm just saying that I'm seeing things that resemble cracks in the foundation of the philosophy that I thought this team was adhering to. So now I have no choice but to keep an eye on how they handle things moving forward with a magnifying glass. Because I mean, the decisions that these guys are making are going to impact this franchise beyond this season. They've they've green-lighted the rookie quarterback. So that's happening. There's nothing we can do about it now. It's going to be awesome. I get to be at the home opener watching you watch football. The Josh Allen era is here whether we like it or not, folks. Whether he's ready or not, it's here. And it's here by the team's own design. I I just don't like the way we got here. It puts a bad taste in my mouth. And I th- I, I, I just... I smell a J.P. Losman, Kelly Holcomb dynamic brewing, which I hate even saying it out loud because that means that it might actually happen. You know those things where you, sometimes the things that you say and the things that you do might actually materialize in real life. Like, I don't know what that philosophy is called, but I'm terrified even saying it out loud because if that's what we, I mean, this is it. You've started him. Now you have to commit to him for another 15 games, whether you like it or not. Because if you yo-yo this kid on and off the field, you will ruin him the same way previous franchises ruined other quarterbacks. Oh, my God. Chris, I'm, I'm going to run out of beer over here. What are you talking about? I got like 50 in the fridge. We got a bucket here with five. And then I have, uh, I think, eight 12-packs over here. We're fine on beer. Trust me. I keep this shit stocked. Because I know you're coming over. That brings us to the hero and zero of the week. This week's hero, I, I mean, an honorable mention goes out to every Bills fan who spent money and time traveling to Baltimore for that game. I Salute you, sir. I mean, you are just, you're a hero in my eyes because you were subjected to some shit. But as far as on the field goes, linebacker Tremaine Edmonds. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. Setting benchmarks for forced fumbles and sacks by a rookie in their very first game, and also looking okay in coverage as a 20-year-old linebacker in the NFL, normally that would get an attaboy from me. You know, a pat on the back, hey, you did a nice job, kid. In a game like Sunday's, though, I feel like, I feel like he might have been the only thing that that worked or that at least didn't make me want to rifle a bottle across my basement. On the other hand, this guy, who I believe is the source of most of my frustrations when you get down to brass tacks, deserves every bit of it, and that's head coach Sean McDermott. Hey, if you want me to take a dump in a box and mark it guaranteed, I will. A dump in a box? How about this? You take a dump and throw it into a swimming pool like the movie Caddyshack? That provides more entertainment value than what I saw on the field on Sunday. 
Okay? I'm sorry. When there's so many holes in a boat to figure out <laughs> that you can't figure out which leak is the biggest, you don't have any choice but to blame the carpenter. So in the same way, the dishonor of this award goes to Sean McDermott this week. And the thing that drives me crazy is the post game. Last year, again, I defended McDermott for owning the decision to bench Tyrod and start Peterman. The following week, he owned his mistake. He owned his mistake. He said, look, I, 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 you know, I thought he was ready. He wasn't. Things didn't go the way we wanted him to. I put Tyrod in. The result wasn't, the result wasn't what we wanted. We're going to work to get better next week. That's it. That's all I said to the public. You know that he went into the locker room and apologized to the team and owned the decision. And that's why they came out the following week and played their balls off for him in Kansas City. If that doesn't happen, it, you don't win that football game. It, to me, it pointed to the type of character McDermott was, or at least what he's trying to establish in the locker room. A sense of accountability. We didn't have it under Rex Ryan. God knows, God knows we didn't have any accountability. There was no, the coach was giving us nothing. So I assumed, hey, this is McDermott saying, look, everybody's going to be held accountable for their decisions, even me. So you can imagine the bad taste that it left in my mouth to hear that McDermott did the typical coach waffling instead of addressing the criticisms of things that really honestly deserved it. I mean, I've got a screenshot here for you. Chris, why don't you read what it says? This is the Biscalia tweet? Yes, sir. Sean McDermott says he needs to look at the tape before he has a true assessment of Nathan Peterman. Look at the tape! You're on the sideline! You mean to tell me that you can't see from 50 feet away what thousands of people saw on their televisions? That's a different angle. <laughs> oh, my God. That's right up there with the people who say, So you oh, need well, all 22. I, I gotta you need go all look, 22. I gotta go look at the all 22. You're either lying to me, or you spent two-thirds of Sunday with your eyes closed pretending to be Stevie Wonder. That's it. Don't patronize me. Don't piss on my leg and tell me that it's raining, Sean McDermott. All right? Don't do it. I'm smarter than that. And I and I don't appreciate you treating me like I'm not. The lack of preparation. I mean, you heard you heard LaShawn McCoy, a captain on this team, come out and say, well, it just felt like everyone was kind of lax from the get-go, and then the game, you know, we never really found a groove. And we got, that lack of preparation, that lack of cohesive game plan, that the lax feeling that players talked about. All of that, that responsibility comes down to the head coach. Okay, when the car, when the machine, it's like the movie Platoon. When the machine breaks down, we all break down. And who's in charge of making sure the machine runs? The head coach. So I'm sorry, you have to lay the blame at his feet. Ugh. Even if he doesn't want to accept it, Chris, you have to. Yeah, it was, horrible, it was a horrible coaching performance. Across the board. Across, across the, God the board. The goddamn board. <laughs> Woo. Chris, I'm actually really glad we're done talking about that because I feel like my blood pressure spiked. I started sweating as I was talking, and I said I wasn't going to get mad about this stuff. Oh, you were, yeah, you were mad, and you were mad on Sunday, whether you want to agree with me or not. Not typical you made, Drew mad. You made children cry. Okay, it's not my fault that those children are afraid of loud noises. If if you bring a child over to a house where football is being watched, and I watch Elvin Kamara catch a long touchdown pass, and it helps my fantasy team, and I cheer, and that kid cries, 
I don't put that in the same boat as me taking a chair and snapping it over my knee because I'm angry about something the Bills did on third and long. You know, that's the one thing I forgot to get for this season. I'll have to, maybe I'll go out and look for it this weekend. I think at, towards the end of last season, I said I was going to go out and buy a wicker chair just for you to destroy during away games. What you don't understand, Chris, is I told you, it's, I'm, I'm ready for this. This season, I meant everything I said. This, I mean, that game got me fired up, and I think I have every right to be angry. But I'm ready for this. If you want to be a two and a two and fourteen team, you go out there and do it. That's fine. But I need to know that there's a plan, and that's what scares me the most. Is thinking that this plan that I thought that made sense, that on paper looked like okay, this is the blueprint that other teams have followed and found success. Now it looks like we're flying directly in the face of that, and I'm starting to get the feeling, this ugly, sinking feeling, that there might not be a plan. <laughs> no, there is, there is a plan. We're going to spend a lot of money come uh, May, April, when, when, March, whenever free agency is. I don't even know. And then we got all our draft picks for next year. We're going to draft offensive linemen. It's going to work out just like the Rams. We're going to finish in third or fourth place. And you know what that you know what we get from that? We get a third or fourth place schedule next season, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> oh my god! So I'm just I'm just glad, look forward to the next season. I'm glad that Chris is trying to take the road of the optimist there. You take a look at the standings, okay? <laughs> it's it's actually pretty funny, guys. We're as dead we, last, and we're going to stay that way as we head into this week's AFC East roundup. Now the good news here is that you won't have to listen to any of the annual bitching. You Grinches out there, and you know who you are. The people who complain when the Bills win week one and get down on other fans. You complain about people saying, oh, look, we're tied for first place in the division. Oh, we're tied for first. Well, you don't have to worry about that this year because we are soundly alone in last place in the AFC East. We are the only 0-1 team. I think we're in last place by a mile. So how did everyone else fare? Well, it starts with New England. Patriots 27, Texans 20. The Patriots advance to 1-0. Folks, football is back, and what would an NFL season be without fireworks, fanfare, and another questionable call by the NFL on a touchdown during a Patriots game? The, the formal excuse for the Gronkowski cut touchdown is that they talk about this catch rule and about how everything's supposed to be reviewed by New York and they'll radio into the game when to the officials when it's time to review something. Except that, you know, week one when that rule, you know, is supposed to be exercised, but New York was quote unquote too slow to get the signal to the referees. And by that point, the game had already advanced and it was too late to review it. Oh, so you mean to tell me that you imposed this rule that you told everyone was supposed to make everything better? And then the very first opportunity you got, you found a loophole to help the Patriots. Shock. Chris, honestly, the story of this game isn't, it's not the Patriots. It's that after a record-setting five-game stretch in 2017, Deshaun Watson came out, and even though he had decent weapons around him, fell flat. I mean, What do you mean decent weapons? Will Fuller was out. Okay. They still have other receivers on that team. I mean, they cut Braxton Miller because they had better receivers. So, so they went. <laughs> we we can't ignore that. You just ripped ass. Yeah, that's how I, I like. That's how I feel about this. Oh, like 
I'm not going to lie. I feel a lot better letting that out. No, 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 no. We should all be evacuated. I should go upstairs, tell my neighbors, you farted, and we should evacuate this building immediately. That was disgusting. Deshaun Watson went 17-34 for 176 yards and a touch. I mean, that sounds more like Tyrod than it does Deshaun Watson, right? I think a lot of people... They drank the off-season Kool-Aid of, well, he tore his ACL, but he's going to come back, and he's going to be the same guy that he was. And it did not show up on Sunday. I mean, you look at what the Patriots did right on offense? I don't know. The rushing attack bogged down. I mean, they don't have a talented running back on that team. Burkhead got 18 carries and only managed three yards per touch. Fumbled at the end of it for no good reason. And no one behind him had more than 25 yards rushing. Factor in the fact that Jeremy Hill, former Cincinnati Bengal, was lost for the season. And James White didn't really do much as a rusher. He did most of his damage in the passing game. I mean, that's fine, but it leaves him without a real ground threat. I mean, Sony Michelle's still coming off that knee surgery, so who knows when he's going to be ready to play. The one positive, if you're a Patriots fan, that stuck out to me was... You know when people were questioning who was going to play wide receiver, Chris, for the New England Patriots? When you looked at their depth chart, and you're like, wait a minute, they only have three wide receivers. Who's going to catch the ball? Gronk. Well, it turns out it doesn't matter. Brady had a 100% completion percentage on 11 throws, 88 yards, and a touchdown, throwing to a pair of guys named Philip Dorsett at wide receiver and some guy named Devlin? He's a fullback? A fullback caught four passes. Who are these people? I, I, at first I had to make sure it wasn't a typo, and these were real people who played for the Patriots. No, just wait until they get uh, Corey Coleman acclimated to their system, and he'll start catching balls. I mean, I guess the moral of the story is that the Patriots are still the Patriots, and Brady is still the guy who can make no-name wide receivers look talented enough to play in the NFL. F that guy. The Dolphins, the Dolphins, uh, 27, Titans 20. That was a seven-hour football game. Tannehill was 20-28 for 230, 2-2. So you know uh, our Dolphins contributor, Travis Wingfield, was just basking in that glory because he is a Tannehill lover. I don't understand it. I mean, first of all, it's a seven-hour game. I mean, I was sitting in my basement after everybody left. I was having drinks. I was getting good and imbibed. You know, I was just basking in the glow of my last Sunday hanging out in the bar. It's about time for the, uh, you know, the pregame for the Sunday night football game to start warming up. So I flip on the, one of the TVs and I realize, holy shit, the Dolphins are still playing. What the hell is happening here? Apparently there was some monstrous delay. So I give props to any Dolphins Lightning. fan who stuck that out and actually hung around for the end of that game. But at the end of the day, you know, the best passing target on that team for the Titans, Delaney Walker, broke his leg. He's done for the season. He was one of my favorite fan. He's been one of my favorite fantasy players for I years. thought it was a dislocated ankle. And a fracture of the leg. Even and then, worse. And then Marcus Mariota suffered an arm injury and had to come out of the game. And uh, Taylor Lewan, cheap shot. He <laughs> had to leave the game. And with all of that, you still only won by a touchdown. Don't start patting yourselves on your teal backs just yet. And then, if we want to talk about the people who are patting themselves on the back too hard, the New York Jets. The Jets won 41-17 to over the Lions on Monday Night Football. Guys, 
For a second, I enjoyed that game, watching Sam Darnold's first NFL pass get picked off and ran back for a touchdown. That was like a that's a that throw was a textbook. Don't do this throw. <laughs> you never throw that ball. It made me feel after watching what I saw on Sunday and just being bitter about the Bills game. It made me feel all kind of like warm and fuzzy on the inside. Like I had just eaten a bowl of tomato soup and it was still piping hot where you can feel it kind of burning the entire way down your esophagus. That's what that one play did for me. It was awesome. Yeah, and how long did that last? <laughs> that was the last thing I enjoyed about that entire game. I sent, I sent, I, I, I tweeted it out after the second pick, but on the, the, uh, Duran Lee pick six, I texted Joe Blue. Duran Lee learned how to play linebacker? What I, what happened? I mean, the game didn't have to be a blowout, but Matt Stafford couldn't stop throwing interceptions. He was like, it's like, it's like he was on top of a fire truck during a parade. And he was just throwing candy, except instead of candy, it was footballs. And instead of children, it was the it was the uh, defensive backs, <laughs> the defensive backs and linebackers of the New York Jets. And it's incredible. The guy had one touchdown, two hundred and eighty six, and passed for fifty eight percent completion, twenty seven of forty six. Now there's already talk that Matt Patricia has lost the locker room. That Sam Darnold is the second coming of Joe Namath, and that the New York Jets are possible Super Bowl contenders? They're f***ing hot! Are you out of your mind? I mean, I'll, I'll give you this. They're Super Bowl contenders within the next five years for you drinking Seagram. You're it's an not, idiot. Let's not forget that it's bet. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen. I for can't wait. For those of you who don't know on this show, I made a bet one night after too many mooseheads with Chris that... It was on the show. I don't even remember this, so that tells you how much I drink. Um, if... If Sam Darnold in his first five years as a starter, so since he started, the clock is the clock yes. has started now. In his first five seasons, plays in the Super Bowl. I have to drink Seagrams at every one of my children' future six. children's. I have to drink a six pack of Seagrams every one of my children's birthdays, every single birthday until they're eighteen. No, 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 no. Until Sam Darnold retires. So if he's going to Carson Wentz this thing. And go to the Super Bowl next year and play 17 years, 15 years in a row. You're drinking a six. I'm showing up at the hospital. Larissa just given birth. Oh, hey, Drew, congratulations on your kid. Here's a six pack of Seagrams to drink. And oh, yeah, I'll have the tripod, I'll have the camera. We'll be live from the delivery room. Here's my point. Darnold, for everyone out there who wants to cheer about this, he looked good. But it was in conservative fashion. I mean, you think about what they were in the preseason. They didn't throw the ball down the field, and they didn't ask Darnold to do that. Okay, all but five of his 21 pass attempts got completed. And I'll give him credit for that. That's a really good, His ratios were really good in terms of completion percentage. They also only asked him to throw the ball 21 times. I mean, you think about it. Tyrod Taylor won a lot of games when his defense stepped up and made plays and only threw the ball 20 times. On those 21, on those 16 completions... He only managed 198 yards, two touchdowns, and a pick. Now, here's what I want to point out. Factor in that 41 of those passing yards came in a single long touchdown pass. That means that on his, on his other 15 completions, he only had 157 yards. The thing with that is when you look at the chart and you watch where those throws and those completions came, they were very conservative with what they asked Sam Darnold to do. 
So for everyone who's saying, oh, look at Darnold, he looks amazing. It's not like he can't, he didn't even come close to sniffing what Patrick Mahomes did. Instead, he threw the ball near the line of scrimmage, had a lot of safe passes, got, got the yardage that was given to him. And then when it was called upon or when he saw an opportunity, made, made a play, a long play downfield. I, I don't want it to sound like it's sour grapes. Darnold had a good game. But for everyone who's trying to anoint him as the next coming of uh, Broadway Joe, everybody needs to slow down because knee-jerk reactions have a way of making everybody look stupid, even some of the smartest people on earth. And I just don't want any of you out there listening to this to end up on the wrong side of that, all right? So, folks, we are heading into week two of the NFL season. I mean, luckily, this isn't college football. And one horrific loss doesn't disqualify the rest of your season, <laughs> even if it probably should. I mean, you lost by 40 points. Chris, what was the final? 44 points? Was that the final spread? 47 to 3. <laughs> 44 points. You're still alive to continue showing up on NFL football fields and playing in an attempt to redeem yourself. And we have the home opener, folks, and it's always a special one for me. I mean, anybody who follows us on Twitter over at Rockpile Report, you look at my pictures the morning of most game days, I am at, I am in our parking lot, which is in, you know, when I sit on top of my truck, I'm probably a football field away from the field house. That's how close I am to the stadium, but it's a private lot, so it opens whenever we feel like showing up. It's the last, I mean, I don't know, you know the address. It's called the mud lot. Yeah, it's the 5330 le- Big Tree Road. There you go. Look for the charged buffalo flag. It's where you're going to find us. I am always in the lot before sunup. Yep, it's the last lot on 20A before you hit actual Buffalo Bills stadium parking. There's something special to me about showing up at the stadium before the sun comes up. Got my buddies there. You know, we're, we're all joking around. We set up all the equipment. I mean, we throw a pretty extensive tailgate. We set up all the equipment. We get some early food going. We you know, we joke around a little bit. Maybe crack a beer before the sun comes up, depending on the day. <laughs> Chris, oh, I, no. Oh, since I got season tickets now, I, 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 you stick to your drinking your beer. I'm drinking hard liquor. The, the thing for me is it's a special thing to sit on the roof of my truck, every home opener, watch the sun come up, and to see that light-up logo – on the side of the side of the stadium, like there's just something special about it for me, and that's why this week I, I, I'm really looking forward to it, regardless of the product on the field. Because honestly, I don't give a shit about one loss, about thirty losses. You know, I, I was reminded of this seeing the picture that Pancho Bila sent us over the weekend. Those guys doing shots that we sent him, and just seeing all the negative reactions on Twitter, but then seeing people who were putting out pictures of their kids dressed up in their Bills gear, looking around my basement at our friends like Dr. Kyle Trimble, who brought over his son, dressed up in a LaShawn McCoy jersey. Yeah, and then you made him cry. That's what this is about. Wins and losses. You know, what happens in 2018? Yes, it matters. But in the same way, it doesn't. This is what it's about. It's those moments that really, for me, it's like church. I go there... I sit and I just reflect and I think about how lucky I am to live where I live and to have the friends that I have and to have everything that I have and to have the ability to be here before sunup and do it. It just fills me with a sense of appreciation. And in that way, 
I feel a connection to all these other people out there who can look at something like what happened on Sunday and say, look, I'm going to be here. <laughs> I was here for 20 years of this before the Bills ever made the playoffs. And we're, we're terrible. I've seen some shit. And I'm still going to be here 20 years from now. That's what it is to me. So I can't wait for Sunday morning. That being said, we're going to run down the tail of the tape. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The place, New Era Field, Orchard Park, New York. The weather, mostly sunny. It's going to be in the high 70s with a 10-mile-an-hour wind, Chris. Game's going to be on CBS. I'm so glad I have a ticket for the game because it's only going to be shown in New York State all the way across to Utica and go straight up from there. And then SoCal will get the game. Tom McCarthy and Steve Berline. Oh, God. God, I do not want to hear those assholes talk about the game. So I will be – I'm glad that I'm going to this football <laughs> game. The injury report for Buffalo. Shaq Lawson is questionable with a hamstring injury. Rookie cornerback Teron Johnson, questionable. I believe it was a shoulder injury. You know, talking to Dr. Kyle Trimble, he said he watched the tape and he didn't, it didn't look like anything serious. might have been a stinger. But that being said, they're treating it with kid gloves. On the Chargers side of the ball, things are a little more extensive. Wide receiver Travis Benjamin, questionable. Defensive end Joey Bosa, out with yes. a foot injury. Defensive end Corey Legit, out with a suspension. Right tackle Joe Barksdale, questionable with a knee injury. And so, folks, this week, we get a chance to host a team that was, I mean, for me and for my sanity last season, was almost one of the backbreakers. I mean, when you want to talk about walking a man to the edge of the plank, that game against the Chargers pretty much did it for me. <laughs> and yet, they thank God that they responded with the game against the Chiefs that they did, because otherwise, I, I might have just completely unraveled. Now, it's hard to know what to expect from an opponent just a week into the season. So we have a special guest on tonight to help us walk through all this. Folks, I'd like to introduce Mr. Garrett Sisti from Bolts from the Blue, part of the SB Nation, uh, SB Nation affiliates over there. Garrett, how are you doing tonight? Good, good, man. I got my beer. You guys got you guys outnumbered me by like 13, but I've got <laughs> my beer here. What are you drinking? I'm ready to get with it. You know, I tried it out a new beer. It's called Power of Love IPA. It's from Mother Earth Brewing Company. Okay. Fantastic. You're an Drew, IPA guy. Drew, I like that. Drew's a huge IPA guy. So, Garrett, a little bit about you. You know, just trying to build a case for you here with our listeners who may not know who you are. You've been a writer for SB Nation's Bolt from, Bolts from the Blue, which is funny because we actually hosted a guy, uh, Jeff Sinyard, who used to oh, write yeah. for Bolts. And we hosted him on the show the week after he penned his final article and quit the website after over the team moving. That's how yeah. passionate he was. I mean, it was incredible just to hear from a fan who's, it's gut-wrenching almost, to know that that happened to you guys. And you're also the host of a podcast, The Lightning Round, and you're going to be hosting a new podcast over there from uh, Bolts from the Blue, centered around the Chargers, right? Yep, yep, two podcasts. Yeah, Jeff Sinyard's a good dude, real smart guy, and nobody took the move easy. Uh, it still hurts. And most Charger fans are caught between rooting for the players and hoping the owner fails and <laughs> fails hard. 
So it's a it's a tough time for Charger fans, especially when you look at a home opener in L.A. and it's 75 percent Chiefs fans and uh, not even filled the capacity and oh. playing in a soccer stadium. So it's all it's not fun right now. But football's back and that's fun. Uh, I've been writing for Bulls from Blue for got to say about five years now. I host a lightning round podcast. I do that. I've done that for about five years. We released a whole new SB Nation podcast network today. And I'll be hosting another podcast called Score More. But, uh, yeah, I've been following the Chargers with a season ticket holder, much like you guys. Uh, wrote for many websites. Um, then I got picked up by SB Nation and Bulls from the Blue. You know, go to training camp each year, cover the team. Been doing it for a long, long time. That's awesome. Now, how many years have you personally been a fan of the Chargers? Uh, well, as long as I can remember, to be honest with you. Um, I remember – you know, sitting down and watching games even when I didn't understand what was happening. Uh, my dad was a big Charger fan. My mom was a big Charger fan. They'd take me to games every year. So really it's been for as long as I can remember, um, probably before I was even born, technically. So uh, it's it, I've been a lifer. So in all that time, everybody has the questions, stock questions we ask almost every new guest to the show. Best moment and worst moment being a fan. Well, worst is probably worse than anybody's worst, and that's being in your hometown, having your team ripped out from under you, and then moving to your biggest rival, which is L.A. Most people don't know that, but, you know, baseball, Chargers, or baseball Padres hate the Dodgers. Chargers, when the Raiders were there, hated the Raiders in L.A. and Oakland, which everybody says is practically L.A. So to move to L.A. was a tough move, not only just – ripping the team from our home city but then taking it to la for a big money grab has been tough so that's that's by far the worst um the best is i attended a um playoff game well no you know i take that back when i was about oh i don't know how old i was but uh when the chargers went to the super bowl uh it was a fun time because we beat the chargers beat the steelers the AFC championship game. And my dad scooped me up. I was a little kid, scooped me up, threw me into the car. And we drove down the streets of San Diego and everybody was honking their horns as if like, Hey, we did it. And it was like this big, like camaraderie among this people of San Diego. And we kind of drove by the stadium and people were there like waving their flags and, uh, you know, honking their horns, blowing air horns. And it was like a big celebration. And it felt like Mardi Gras in San Diego because San Diegans don't get to taste of a championship game very often. <laughs> no, that's... And when it happens, it's a big party. And it was the best moment. Uh, I just remember, like, being able to connect with my dad and the people of San Diego. It was like a whole whole mesh of different emotions there. And uh, it was by far my favorite moment as a Charger fan. That's awesome. So now when you watch games, are you a... I like to, you know, I like to soberly watch the film and I like to stay at home with a notebook and a pad and a pen... Are you a, I like to go to a bar, hang out with a couple of my buddies, have a few beers. Are you a, I like to go to the game and drink and tailgate and do all these things. Where do you fall in the you know spectrum of game day habits? So I used to be the guy tailgating, drinking when I was a season ticket holder. Now I'm more of a objective observer because I got to break down, you know, I watch the games, uh, tweet out what's going on, but then do film breakdown later on that night. Uh, the next morning, watch it a third time so that we can talk about it on the podcast, and then I can write articles on it. So it's a whole – it almost becomes work, but uh, 
I love it. So uh, more of a guy who does the film breakdown, watches it too many times, and uh, and still loves it. Well, Drew does that with a 12-pack. <laughs> well, now, I do drink while uh, oh, while it's all, that's for sure. If you're a Bills or a Chargers fan, it's hard not to have a beer or two. It almost <laughs> makes it easier. It just makes it a little bit easier. And that's kind of where I want to open up with for those of you who don't know, I mean, there's Bills fans out there who have no idea what goes on in the Chargers on the on the left coast. Taking a look at what's happened to the Chargers, everything starts, I feel like, every single offseason with the annual just deluge of injuries. Regardless of how much things change, some things don't. And 2018 is another example of how the Chargers just cannot escape the injury bug. I mean, the Bills know what that feels like. Bills fans out there, used to remember how we used to be frustrated how every single offseason and by week five of the regular season, we were cursing everything, the, you know, the cemetery that they moved. And I mean, Garrett, I don't know if you know this, but the Bills in constructing their current stadium moved a cemetery. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, and there's rumors that that plot, that these people did a report, they think that even before that cemetery existed, Indians use that site as a burial ground. So you can understand why year after year when all these crazy injuries kept happening to the Buffalo Bills, we'd look at it and say, look, I mean, what you, you put, you've got all these strikes against you. But it sounds like the plot of a Scooby Doo cartoon. Exactly. Like putting it on the <laughs> Indian burial ground, ripping up dead bodies out of the cemetery. Exactly. But at the same time, you guys haven't done any of that, and you guys have had no better luck than we have over the last few years. And 2018 has been no different. I mean, just before the season even started, you lost your number one tight end, Hunter Henry, to an ACL injury. He's done for the season. Second cornerback, Jason Verrett, who was a former pro bowler in the singular season where he was healthy, tore his Achilles. Freak injury, he's done for the season. Your number four defensive back, Jalen Watkins, ACL injury, On he's been designated as IR to return, and that significant, which we're going to talk about in a second. And then your number three wide receiver, Artavis Scott, ankle injury, he's done for the season. Now, all of these injuries came before the season even got underway, and then last week, it got even worse, if that can be expected. Number one defensive end, Joey Bosa, which, luckily for you guys, right before we started recording this segment, we found out that he has not been diagnosed with a long-term foot injury. He's week to week. Now, he's not going to play this week. I know that. But the good news for you guys is that you don't have to put him on IR considering you've already tagged somebody to return. I don't know if that's rescindable. I don't know how that works. But thank God you don't have to entertain that idea because Joey Bosa will be back at some point, just not soon. Then your number three wide receiver, Travis Benjamin. He goes out with a foot injury, and your your right tackle, Joe Barksdale, leaves last week's game with a knee injury. Now, Bose is the big name here. He's a force in the pass rush, and he's a star at this point. Two years into his third year, going into his third year, he is an absolute star in this league. But this latest run of injuries, I mean, you're talking multiple starters coming off the field, and then you add in suspensions of defensive end Corey Legit and defensive back Sam Shields. The roster that you guys have been trotting out for the last week and into this week isn't the one that you envisioned at the beginning of the season. So I, I, I want to start our interview, I guess, with of these injuries, 
Which of them do you think is going to have the biggest impact on the way that your team game plans for the upcoming five or six games? Yeah, so, yeah, there's a long list. And um, Sam Shields isn't actually a Charger. But uh, you can add in Forrest Lamp, who was the Chargers' second-round pick last year. Uh, Didn't play at all last year, was injured. And then uh, coming back from an injury, played in training camp, played in the preseason, the last game. And then all of a sudden, he was inactive on Sunday for whatever reason against the Chiefs. So another guy who's supposed to have a big impact on this team, he was drafted to be the starting right guard, is not there he was either. A first, so he was a first round pick, right? He was he was a second round second pick. pick. Okay, yeah, I, I know. I remember yes. them taking him highly. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, most people believed he was a first round pick, and because he's a guard, he kind of fell a little bit. But um, in terms of the biggest impact, um, I mean, having Joey Bosa not on the field is a bad thing. Uh, the team only gets better with Joey Bosa, and you saw last year, week eleven, he wreaked havoc on the Bills' offensive line, and on Nathan Peterman, who still might be seeing ghosts of Joey Bosa the way he played in Week 1. But um, I think the biggest one, because the Chargers work with a two-headed monster, and Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram, so they still have a pass rusher. If they didn't have Ingram, they'd be dead in the water. But the biggest to me is Joe Barksdale being out, because the guy behind Joe Barksdale is Sam Tevy. He was a former seventh-round pick, and he's very, very raw. He played okay at the end of 2017. At the beginning of preseason, he was garbage. And on Sunday, he had to take over, and he was having issues with D. Ford. And D. <laughs> Ford is no Jerry Hughes. No. So this coming Sunday, Sam Tevy's going to have issues. And they're probably going to have to put in either Eckler or Gordon in the backfield and kind of help him on his side. But when they line Hughes up on the right side, that's almost a gimme every single time. So Sam Tevy being in at the right tackle instead of Joe Barksdale is probably the biggest loss for the Chargers. So you just answered my next question. I was going to ask, what positions have the, you know, affected by injuries have the best and worst depth? So if right tackle's the worst, what position that's been affected by injury do you think has the highest probability to rebound because of the depth behind them? Uh, cornerback, for sure. Um, the Chargers were four deep. Uh, the three cornerbacks they had last year, Casey Hayward was a pro bowler, uh, Trevor Williams on the other side went very unnoticed but was a top 15 corner, and they were arguably one of the best cornerback duos in the NFL, outside of the duo in Jacksonville, obviously. But uh, the slot corner, Desmond King, had an outstanding year last year, was the second best slot corner in the NFL. So when you match those three together, you throw in Jason Verrett, and there's an odd man out. They were kind of juggling Des, Des King to free safety, and they, they were kind of mixing and matching, but they never really had a solid three. They had four bodies. And they added him, of course, in nickel and dime. They added another corner and another DB. But, you know, in base defense, when they had the three corners, there was one guy who deserved to be on the field that wasn't on the field. So when Jason Verrett got injured, it basically took care of itself. And it's the same cornerback trio they had last year that was very successful. So they, with the Jason Verrett injury, which everybody expected, outside of <laughs> Charger fans, um, once, once he got injured, it was an easy fix. It kind of solved itself. Well, and that's funny because that brings me into our defensive preview. You're talking about how your your cornerbacks were some of the best in the NFL last season. We talk a lot about how easy it is to prepare for a passing game against the Buffalo Bills. But there's some things that I saw out of the Chargers last week that, I don't know, they concern me. 
One of them is deep coverage. Okay. In terms of you guys <laughs> being able to play us, because if we're going to start Uncle Rico back here at quarterback, you know, Mr. Josh Allen, with who can't throw a wheel route to save his life, but can throw a ball 60 yards through the air with just a flick of the wrist. One of the things I looked at was your deep coverage and how you guys fared in that aspect last week. And it actually stood out to me when I just looked at the box score and then I looked at the passing chart. The Chiefs' deep passing statistics for everyone out there listening at home. Six attempts, five completions, and one touchdown. 136 of the team's 265 passing yards, which is over 50%. And Tyreek Hill on deep passes was two of two for 50 yards. Now, this is what I want to ask you. You just got done telling me how good your cornerbacks are going to be. Does this deep passing issue, is it precipitated by the safeties, the corners? Was it a coverage issue? I mean, what do you think drove a lot of that? Well, a couple things. First off, Gus Bradley played a lot of zone. So basically Tyreek Hill just got open, found an open part of the zone, and went nuts. Second, it was a lot of intermediate passing with a ton of missed tackling. It was... You know, Tyreek Hill, Tyreek Hill's long touchdown pass was a slant that he caught 10 yards from the line of scrimmage and took to the house. A lot of the long plays and these deep plays were a lot of mistackling and a lot of bad safety play. Now, the free safety, Derwin James, who's the first-round pick, the rookie, played very well at free safety. Strong safety, Jaleel Adai, did not. And if there's somebody that needs to take the blame here, it's Jaleel Adai. So... Missed tackling, bad safety play from Drew Little Dye, both hurt them very bad. See, so when I watch that, and it's funny you mentioned Hill. Now, on his uh, that slant that he did, that's what I was trying to tell Chris before we even started recording tonight. Tyreek Hill, you see the long touchdown pass. What you don't realize is that it was a, just a flick of the wrist, short area throw. It doesn't mean Mahomes is the next coming of Brett Favre. Yeah. Now, having said that, I look at the two passes. He has two of them. Both of those were completed at least 15 yards from the line of scrimmage. That concerns me because that's behind your linebackers. It's behind your cornerbacks. It's where your safety should be kind of biting down in the box. And yet he found a way to get open, but he's not a physical receiver. He doesn't have size. He doesn't have these advantages to him. So I guess my question for you is, now that you've seen speed receivers and they beat you, how do you think, I mean, we don't have those. <laughs> I'm sure you've done your research <laughs> and you understand that yep. there isn't a fast receiver on this roster outside of an undrafted free agent out of Alabama who I believe is on the roster simply because he outworked Corey Coleman. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's my feeling. Given that, how do you feel that they'll match up against more physical competition in terms of wide receivers? You know, a couple guys who are, Six foot two, six foot three, six foot four, and a couple hundred pounds. Yeah, so uh, I know I know it sounds a little funny saying, "Hey, the Chargers have pretty good cornerbacks," and then getting smoked by Tyreek Hill. But the speedy receivers are the biggest Chargers issues from the DBs. Casey Hayward is very, very good, but he's not very fast. Neither is Trevor Williams. Desmond King, who's a slot corner, he fell in the fifth round mostly because he ran a four six forty. He's not quick either. So when you get a speedy receiver, you can get behind these corners easy. But where they are at their best is with physical wide receivers. They get in receivers' tip pockets. They don't let receivers bully them. 
and they were very physical. So on paper, this is a matchup that favors the Chargers. No, well, and that's I've seen that, and that's been my fear coming into this game. I'm like, look, they they got, you know, I was all excited watching. I watched the Chiefs uh, Chargers game last week. You know, it was kind of a going away party for my in home bar. My wife and I are buying a new home that doesn't have one. <laughs> so it was my last <laughs> Sunday to sit there with both flat screens, just watching Sunday ticket, any game I wanted to, and I had the Chargers game on, and I'm like, okay, let's see what we're going to get into next week. They did seem like they had some problem with the speed receivers, but they com- you guys completely shut Travis Kelsey out. Who and is- Sammy Watkins, too. Oh, and Sammy Watkins, who Bills fans are familiar with, he only knows one route. <laughs> It's a deep yeah. route. That's it. That's it. If he catches a fly route, that's about it. No, no, no. He knows. He knows a uh, the route to the doctor's office. <laughs> hey. So now here's a question for you. When it comes to your secondary, given the fact that you just got done playing one young, rather inexperienced quarterback, effectively playing his first start, strong arm guy, mobile, kind of can move around outside the pocket, move his throwing platform. He got outside and he made some plays on you guys. What holes do you think, given our wide receiver talent, given the fact that we don't have a Tyreek Hill, are there any holes out there in your defense that you think that the Bills offense might be able to exploit? Okay, now we're talking because I feel like I've been really high on the Chargers, and we're just talking about the DBs, which just happen to be the most talented part of their defense. So let's talk about what they're not good at. Their run defense is no bueno. Now, they, they shut down Kareem Hunt. He ran for 49 yards, but that's because the Chiefs I have him in fantasy that. football. I know that yeah. he did not. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I don't have him. I have, I have him too. Yeah, so that, that wasn't a good matchup for you guys. It will be next time, but they basically saw this matchup with Tyreek Hill and took advantage of it the whole game. They didn't need to go to Kelsey. They didn't really need to go to Watkins. They didn't need to run Kareem Hunt. They could go to Tyreek Hill, and they could break off 15 to 20 yards almost every time. So – and he's almost guaranteed to break one for a touchdown sooner rather than later. So they just kept feeding Tyreek Hill. Now, the run defense is not very good. It did not improve in the offseason. They drafted Justin Jones in the third round, and uh, he's more of a, a space eater more than he is more of a run defender. So Corey Leach is out. Uh, Brandon Meebane is uh, – approaching over the hill now he has struggled in the preseason he didn't play great in week one he had some flashes but he wasn't great uh this is the point where like in week 11 where LaShawn McCoy can eat now I know this is a completely different offensive line than you guys had last year and uh, you know when you're talking <laughs> we is that is we, that an understatement or what when we were talking about earlier in the show when we were talking about our offensive line we actually played a drop i was like when we intro the offensive line chris you got to give me this drop and it was the desktop scene from tommy boy where he's just crashing the car uh, that's what our offensive line was last week yeah yeah so you know no cody glenn no richie incognito no eric wood and so it's a whole new offensive line but LeSean McCoy ripped off 114 yards last year. He scored a touchdown and even caught a touchdown. He scored two touchdowns. So that's where they could definitely attack this defense. Also, you're talking about mobile quarterbacks. They have problems with, they have problems with mobile quarterbacks. Now, I know uh, when they benched last year, when they benched Nathan Peterman, they brought in Tyrod Taylor, and the Chargers had fits. They just could not bottle him up. He even scored a touchdown, too. He, did. Uh, he was an issue. So, you know, Mahomes didn't rush a lot, but when he did, he was moving the sticks. 
So, you know, when they got Josh Allen in, you know, towards the, middle, the beginning of the third quarter, there were a lot of that design run plays that they were running for him just to kind of get some positive yardage. Mm-hmm. That's stuff that could definitely work with this defense. This Chargers defense bit on a lot of these gadget plays, a lot of the trickery, a lot of the eye candy with the Chiefs and how Andy Reid kind of threw a lot at him. And they, they struggled, and they couldn't really find where the ball was at. You do a lot of that RPO or that design run and keepers with the with Josh Allen. Like you showed a couple plays at the beginning of the third quarter, that could work with the Chargers because they struggle in that area. Well, that's, <laughs> you just made me feel a little bit better. Not a lot, a little bit, <laughs> but and I'll take it. I'm sure there's fans out there listening to the show who will definitely take some stock in that. I mean, it's tough when you're talking about a team that again. You talked about LaShawn McCoy in the passing game doing damage against you guys. Mm-hmm. Last week, we talked to a guest who, between the two of us, watched enough, no, either know enough or watched enough film on each team to know that the Ravens would struggle against passes to lineback, uh, excuse me, passes to the, towards the linebackers using tight ends and running backs. Both of those they- positions were wholly neglected in the offense. So, it's one of those things where maybe our offensive coordinator will show up this week. And if that's the case, hopefully that's the track he takes. Now, on defense, pass rush. That's the other thing that I really noticed. One of the things that wrecked the game on Sunday for Buffalo was the fact that our offensive line was a sieve. I mean, they were just wholly overmatched by the front seven of the Ravens. It wrecked any kind of game plan that we were going to put in place. And they finished the day with six sacks. So when I look at your front seven, you don't have Bosa, you don't have Legit. Where is the? Where do you think the pressure is coming from from the Chargers in this game? So, you know, without Joey Bosa, like I talked about earlier, Melvin Ingram's the next best up. And what the Chiefs ended up doing was allocating an extra man to Melvin Ingram's side and basically making the other guys beat him. The third pass rusher is Chris Landrum, and the backup to Joey Bosa is Isaac Rochelle, the end. Now, he was a six-round pick, and Landrum was undrafted free agent, and neither of them did any damage at all. They basically said, here's your one-on-one matchup, Landrum and Rochelle. You guys win. You guys can have the sack. And they didn't win, of course. And so, um, so it was tough. And, you know, even though the Bills gave up, you know, six sacks, it was six sacks to, like, five different players – and there was like nine different QB hits. They just basically sent the house. There was this, and you know we talked about offensive line earlier, but it seemed like the Bills' offensive line put Peterman in some bad situations. And I don't want to be a Peterman apologist here because I'm not that guy, but they put him in a lot of third and longs, and the Ravens basically pinned their ears back and sent the house. As, and then when you look as at, they do, though. You need to know yeah. as a coach that that's what that team is going to throw at you. And yeah. somehow we just stumbled in there like a babe in the woods. Like, bah, we, <laughs> what? oh, no, I'm sure they'll play patty cake in this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, the offensive line and the penalties, and then when you get short fields on, like, a bobble punt and all that uh, <laughs> doesn't doesn't help out. But, uh, you know, look, they do, I, the Ravens don't have a ton of good pass rushers, to be quite honest with you. They've got a lot of lower-level guys, but – they sent too many guys at the Buffalo offensive line. They sent more guys than they could handle. So I think the Chargers probably try to do that again. But in terms of another pass rush and where they're going to get it, I don't know. This has got to be a back uh, bounce-back game for guys like Chris Landrum and uh, Isaac Rochelle, who didn't look good in week one. 
Well, that's just it. So if you're going, if you guys are going to blitz, I mean, that was one of the things that stuck out to me. Derwin James was the only player on your team with a sack, and he's a safety. He's not even a defensive lineman or a linebacker. So if that's where the pressure's coming from this week <laughs> on extra man blitzes, how does the defense look when you guys send those extra rushers? So Gus Bradley loves to do lots of twists and stunts and send extra guys. And uh, obviously they do Derwin James. And if you saw Derwin in college, I mean, he was one of the best blitzers, like, among all college oh, players, I know. including edge rushers. Yeah. He was incredible. So the two times they sent Derwin James, he had a sack and then forced a, a errant throw on a third down. So he was very good. The other guy they like to send is the slot corner, Des King. Uh, they didn't do a lot of that in week one, but he had four sacks last year. He's a guy they send a lot from the slot. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of twists and stunts, a lot of guys moving around. They're not where they line up isn't where they're going to end up. So there's going to be a lot of confusion. At least they try to create a lot of chaos and confusion on the offensive line. See, and that's what bothers me about this decision to start Josh Allen. You're talking about a kid who in the preseason flat out showed you that he has trouble making basic sight adjustments. There was a play against the Cleveland Browns where he there, there's a cornerback who's very clearly lined up at the line of scrimmage, ready to blitz. He takes a, he scans the defense, he gets up to the line of scrimmage, he snaps the ball. He never accounts for the fact that there needs to be, the line is overmatched, there's a free rusher coming, he never even sees him, and it ends up as a sack. To know that that's where they're throwing this kid, after, he's just two weeks removed or three weeks removed from making that decision. I'm sorry, but I don't think your vision gets that much better in a couple weeks. I don't think it does. So with that said, this scares the hell out of me. <laughs> now, on the offensive side of the ball, one of the things that stuck out to me about last week's games for the last week's game for the Chargers, your passing attack in the first half. I mean, you guys were the number one. People out there think, oh, the Patriots, they're the king of passing the football. Tom Brady's the best. The Chargers were the number one passing offense in football last season. In the game against the Chiefs last week, I saw that Rivers finished the game 34 of 51, which sounds crazy. And even crazier than that, 17 incompletions. 15 of those were dropped balls. 15. That's how old Chris was the last time a woman found him funny. <laughs> uh, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, hey, I was class clown in high school two years in a row. You're welcome, America. Oh <laughs> and you guys only had three passing first downs in the first half. So I, I, I guess I just I want to ask a few things. First of all, First half struggles in the passing game. Is that a product of just first game jitters, the Chiefs' defensive game plan, or is that just lack of execution or ability? Uh, probably the latter. I mean, it was definitely not the Chiefs' game plan because when you watch when you watch the game, the drops came on not contested catches, but a lot of wide open plays oh. where they're streaking downfield and they drop balls. Now, a lot of people, according to a couple analysts who tracked it, they said that they dropped at least four wide-open touchdowns during that game. 
I would argue there's more than that because they're counting the ones that just hit them in the hands. The other ones you could have at least gotten to and hit your fingertips, I think count too. But regardless, it was probably the worst games of Travis Benjamin and Tyrell Williams' careers. They were downright awful. Even though Tyrell Williams caught a touchdown, he was terrible. He should have caught three. The Chargers could have easily put up 40, 47 points on the Chiefs. It was not their secondary. It wasn't a game plan. It was just a lack of execution. I guess you could say it might be jitters, but you know when you're wide open and you drop passes, it's it's wild. I mean, oh, check out the highlights; it's everywhere. Trust me, we Kelvin uh, Benjamin, our yeah, de- okay. yeah, our de facto right. number one last week. Yeah, you get it. Drops that pass from Josh Allen in the back in the end zone, and yeah. I actually Chris watched me. I actually opened a beer. I had just opened it, and I just chugged it and finished it and went back to the fridge. I was like, well, all right, There's that's how our day is going. Fantastic. <laughs> and as the day goes, so will I. So I've got to ask, these injuries that the team is experiencing, I mean, it seems like a constant theme for you guys. Artavis Scott was important to your passing game, even though he's not a household name. Hunter Henry, incredibly important. You know, everyone likes to look at the tight end coming back. Uh, oh, Jesus. Antonio Gates. Antonio Gates. I, I, yep. I'm, I'm, I feel like an idiot for not remembering his name. I mean, that's, that, that's it. He used to be the man. He was a high fantasy football draft pick. Everybody knew who he was. Antonio Gates was your bread and butter for years. He's back, but you lost your de facto number one. What kind of an impact are all of these injuries and just the moving depth chart having on your performance, do you think? So, you know, we talked about the Travis Benjamin injury earlier, and he was one of the ones that had a terrible game in week one. And because of that, you saw a little bit more of Mike Williams, the former first-round pick, the wide receiver out of Clemson. You saw a lot more of him, and he played really good. So much like the corners, the Chargers, I mean, people are talking about how they have the best wide receiver core in football. Um, I don't don't believe that, but they are four deep, and they have four starting-caliber wide receivers. So when a guy like Travis Benjamin goes down, it hurts your passing attack because he's a guy who stretches the field. But they also have Tyrell Williams, who's more of a long strider, but also can build the top off a of defense too. So when you have Keenan Allen and you you know substitute Mike Williams for Travis Benjamin, you don't lose a ton. You lose some speed on the field, but you're not losing a ton in terms of talent. So especially with the way Mike Williams has played, he play you know he didn't play at all last year. Talk about injuries, didn't play at all last year. Or when he did, he struggled. You know he got in halfway through the year, struggled, looked terrible. Um, had a great camp, good preseason, and then had a really good game in week one uh, when they really needed to get some yards going and catch up uh, with the uh, and try to you know cut into the lead. They passed through Mike Williams a lot, and he looked pretty good. So. In terms of the passing attack, it doesn't lose a lot. But in terms of the tight end, look, Hunter Henry was supposed to show out this year. I mean, this was his year. You know, last year, his snaps were getting kind of cut into because Antonio Gates was still on the field, and they would run a lot of two tight end sets, and yes. he kind of stealed catches. And, and you know, they still wanted to run Gates out there, even though he's just old and he doesn't have a ton left. So... Um, now they let Gates go in the offseason, but then when Hunter Henry went down, they needed somebody else. And no other tight end showed up in camp, so they brought him back. He played limited snaps in week one because he signed right before week one. He didn't sign during the preseason, so he only had a couple days to get back into football shape. So 
he's not going to be 100 percent on Sunday against the Bills. So you're looking at Virgil Green, who isn't a dynamic playmaker by any means, uh, more of a tight end too, if you ask me. And he he was supposed to be a tight end too until Hunter Henry, but uh, yeah, that that hurts in terms of a passing attack. But what they've done is they've now tried to line uh, Melvin Gordon and Austin Eckler out wide, the running backs, and get them more involved in passing game to kind of make up for the loss of Hunter Henry. Well, and that's, I guess, Eckler and Gordon, and that's where this all comes down to and finalizes for me. In terms of what we're going to see on Sunday, play design. It's difficult to predict for me as a person what the Bills are going to do on Sunday, considering what I saw I'll tell you right now, Last week we're going to throw that football was, over them mountains. Considering what I saw on defense last week, I mean, that wasn't <laughs> NFL football. It wasn't. I'm sorry. You don't get paid and also lose by 44 points. I, 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 if you were Army versus – if you were the Citadel playing Alabama, which also I will never forget who Mike Williams is. Never. <laughs> as an Alabama fan, I will never forget who Mike oh, Williams okay. is. There you go. So – if you're Alabama playing the Citadel, you lose by 44 points. Uh, if you're if you're the Buffalo Bills with a paid roster full of players playing another paid roster full of players, there's no excuse for that. There simply isn't. So I don't know that we're really going to roll out an NFL caliber defense, quote unquote, because I haven't seen it yet this season. But based on what you know and considering what dangerous weapons Eckler and Gordon were, I mean, I looked at my fantasy football stats and I was dumbfounded by how many passes Gordon was catching. How exactly do you envision your offense attacking our defense on Sunday? So it probably won't come as a surprise because the Chargers did it last year in Week 11. The Ravens did it in Week 1. It's basically attacked the middle of the field. Keenan Allen was streaking. They did crosses with Tyrell Williams and Keenan Allen. Keenan Allen went nuts. He had two touchdowns, 150-something yards. He went bananas last year. And you saw in the middle of the field, the Ravens basically ran that three tight end yep. uh, trio oh, of you know, Max had, Williams, Doyle. Every one of their tight ends had at least, at least two receptions and at least 25 yards receiving. But all of their catches went for first downs. Yeah, and I, you know what's wild is Hayden Hurst, who they drafted in the first round, was basically their blocking tight end. I had no, I, I don't know what they were doing there. That didn't make any sense to me. But anyway, between like Andrews and Williams and Doyle, they ate up the middle of the field. They moved the chains. That's basically what you're going to get out of Keenan Allen, Tyrone Williams, who's going to run routes in the middle of the field. You're probably going to see Mike Williams do the same because he makes a living there. And you're going to see Gordon Eckler do the same. They did it in week 11 last year. They got Gordon Neckler involved, you know, on the dump offs in the middle of the field and a lot of, you know, just getting them in space. But, you know, basically the Ravens just attacked the Bills linebacker in the middle. And it's the same thing that they're going to do again. They're going to try to get, you know, the Mike Tremaine Edmonds, who looked actually looked good in coverage, to be honest with you. Damn I actually like myself from Edmonds. He was the only silver lining for me. Yeah, yeah. And then they're going to try to get the Will um, uh, Matt Milano. To, to run and cover, too. So basically they're going to try to get these linebackers to cover in space. When you get these quick running backs, like Eckler's, a, a, you know, he's got some wiggle. Uh, Gordon isn't really like a speed demon, but, you know, he can, he can cut it loose, too. So they're going to try to get Edmonds and Milano to run and cover, and they're just going to try to eat that middle of the field. <sighs> you don't leave me feeling good about this. 
I mean, is there any upside to where you've, in your analysis, where the mm-hmm. Bills can win on defense against your offense? Well, I mentioned it earlier. I think Jerry Hughes can have a multiple sack game. He was very close against the Ravens game. He, you know, there was a couple pressures and there was a couple times where he hit Flacco, but didn't quite bring him down, didn't get a sack. But man, and that's against a pretty good Baltimore offensive line. You know, he's going against Ronnie Stanley. He did, he did pretty good. Who's, who's no slouch. When you go against a former seventh round pick, uh, it's going to be a long night for the right side of that offensive line. And when they line Hughes up on the right side, Philip Rivers obviously can't move. I mean, he's not a guy who's going to scramble. So he's going to stay in the pocket, and there's, it's no secret. If you can get pressure on Rivers, he's in trouble because he isn't going anywhere. So I, I think Jerry Hughes by, will absolutely eat on Sunday. He is going to eat Sam Tevy alive on the right side when he lines up over there. And I, I would line him up more times than not on the right side and take advantage of that matchup because on the left side is Russell Okung. A former Pro Bowler, very good on the left side. The left side of the line is doing pretty good. They got Mike Pouncey up the middle now. But right side, there's there's some issues going on there. Between Michael Schofield, the right guard right now, because Forrest Lamp isn't playing. Uh, he might be active on Sunday, but Schofield's definitely the starter. And then their right tackle, Sam Tevy, they're going to have problems on the right side. That's oh, – man, I, at least I know there's a chink in the armor here that we might – because after last week, I don't know what to expect. I mean, like I said, last week didn't look like an NFL team. So I don't know what we're going to bring to the table on Sunday. Both teams had ugly losses. You call that an <laughs> ugly loss? You scored 28 points. Yeah, you had touchdowns. Oh, you don't okay. get to talk to me about ugly. Oh, my <laughs> God. You, had, you found Boo. the end zone. <laughs> okay. You know well, what the end zone Well, they both were good like. losses. Okay, maybe yours was – okay. If you want to one-up me, yes, your loss was worse than our loss. But still <laughs> – the Chargers' loss was not good, and it was not pretty. No, because in the first half, if you guys had executed better, I, I've read all the, you know, I've followed all the blogs. I've, I've bolts from the blue. I've read a lot of the coverage mm-hmm. there. If you guys had executed on a lot of those drops in that first half, you might have had that game in hand. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the definition of the Chargers. I mean, that's always what it is. They're almost win. They almost win almost every game. So prediction. What's your prediction for the outcome of the game? And you know what? One more thing I'll add where the Buffalo Bills can definitely win, special teams. Marcus Murphy's got some wiggle. That kid can run, and he looked like he almost was going to break one late in that game, Baltimore. Tyreek Hill made a mockery of that Chargers special team. So uh, with Marcus Murphy, I think there's another advantage there on special teams. But uh, in terms of a prediction, I think the Chargers end up winning this and probably pretty handily. I'll say 31-10. I think they embarrassed themselves last year. It was all or last week. It was all self-inflicted. And the Chargers will put up some points this week. All right, 31-10, Chris. The sp- uh, right now, according to the, the Yahoo Sports app, it's the Chargers are favored by eight and a, eight and a half. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Mm. I th- I don't think that they'll. I think the Chargers are going to win. I don't think they'll win by more than a touch. So I think I think it'll be. Based on what you said of the off, of your offensive line being trash on the on the right hand side, I think it's gonna be a lot closer. I'm gonna go uh, twenty to sixteen Chargers. Last week I had to drink a Seagrams, a purple Seagrams, because I bet the Bills to beat the spread. I'm doubling down. 
I think they're gonna. Fi- I don't. I don't. I don't take them to win until they show me they. I mean, we're starting a rookie quarterback, but I am never gonna bet against them with eight and a half points. Are you crazy? Of course not. Because no team full of people who are getting paid should get beat by forty. So I'm assuming they're gonna want to respond. I'm taking the Bills. Oh man, I'm gonna say this game's gonna be. 20, I think the defense responds. I think the offense struggles. I'm going to say 24 to 17. 24 17. LA? LA. There you go. Spoken like a true gentleman. Now, Garrett, where can people find your work? So I am at Garrett Sisti. Name is the same handle. Garrett. Last name's S I S T I. You can find me there. Right on Bulls from the Blue. You can check out either podcast. I know your Bills fans probably don't care about the Chargers, but. It's the Lightning Round podcast, and then I got a new podcast called the Score More podcast where it's released on Thursday, and I will talk about the upcoming matchup with the Bills. At Garrett Sisti on Twitter, follow both of his podcasts, the Lightning Round podcast, and then Score More. Score More actually comes out tomorrow. Always great meeting people through being on other podcasts, even though you were drunk for that one, and I was sober (laughs) enough to get his name and Skype handle for him to come on the show Absolutely killed it, Garrett Sisti. Bolts from the blue, SB Nation. Guys, this week, it's the home opener. How can you be angry about that? This is it. Go out there, high-five a bunch of your friends, show up at the tailgates. Have fun with this. This season, the Bills may or may not be anything. And if they are, great. That's found money. If you think we're going to be like last week, then look. Get drunk by 11, get in the stadium, and get kicked out before the kickoff. We don't need you in the stadium. What I'm trying to say to you guys is show up, have fun. Enjoy the moment the way I enjoy it. Be loud, be proud, and let's go Buffalo. Chris, I'm Drew Gear. that's Chris Kruger, and this has been the Rock Pile Report.